0: Welcome to the Busters, where we explore the history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is episode 17, The Fall of Black Jack Kraken, 1950. I'm Keith Pilly. Okay, for the past couple of weeks, we have been talking about the ongoing Project Mousetrap, which really seemed to make a difference in the Pacific. By using the sea creatures' own behaviors against them, Project Mousetrap allowed the Navy to disable or kill large numbers of sea creatures without the horrendous ship losses that had been caused by straight-ahead combat. But for all the success, there was still one primary creature at loose on the Pacific, and it was the worst of them. This week, at long last, the fall of Black Jack Kraken. 1950 opened with months of quiet, steady, moderate success as Operation Mousetrap expanded into standard operation for shipping protection in the Pacific. Convoys ran up and down the west coast, including to Alaska, and out into the ocean to Hawaii and even Australia with regularity, occasionally to the Philippines and Taiwan, always surrounded by a belt of destroyers towing explosive barges, often with escort carriers also steaming along with napalm-armed air complements. Increasingly, the Navy felt like they had the upper hand. Quote, If I'm flying air patrol on a convoy, said Lt. Oren Gessen of Scouting Squadron 6 on the Enterprise, it almost turns into a game now. Can I spot the bastards early enough that I get to make my napalm run and cut out the mousetrap boys? I mean, either way, we get the sons of bitches, most of the time, but there's something mighty satisfying about zooming down to the deck and dropping fire on them. For hundreds of miles around land, including both the continental United States and islands large enough to have an airbase like Hawaii, round-the-clock air surveillance from a new naval long-endurance blimp program helped provide early warning for some, but not all, creature attacks. By pre-war standards trade was lethargic, but it existed, which was a marked improvement over the previous five years. The operation wasn't flawless. Every month, a few merchant ships were lost to creatures who bypassed the mousetrap cordons, and the destroyers Lee and Simpson were both lost in action with most of their crews. Moreover concern grew steadily through the first months of the year that as feared the supply of liberty ships on the west coast available for use as mousetrap bait was rapidly dwindling but the operation steadily whittled down the number of lesser creatures active in the pacific and removed at least 11 secondary class creatures from action blackjack kraken the remaining known primary was occasionally sighted and destroyed several merchant vessels and the destroyer Lee, and severely damaged several others, but Black Jack eluded mousetrap damage, never seeming to grab the bait vessels. Black Jack's presence continued to cast a pall over the Pacific, even as undeniable progress was made. Across the country, the mood teetered. Elation mixed with residual dread in whipsaw fashion. Wilson Martinson of Olathe, Kansas, told the FCDP, quote, I was 17 in the spring of 50. Biggest thing I can remember from that stretch was the hard split and how my parents saw the news. My dad was excited. He thought the end was nearer and we were on our way back to normalcy. I remember he kept talking about how great baseball season was going to be without this black cloud hanging over us, about how the gas rationing was finally going to end and we'd be able to take a road trip to the Grand Canyon and so on and so on. My ma saw it differently. She'd never really been able to catch the wave of excitement that everyone else seemed tapped into. I think maybe part of that was because our Aunt Virginia had lived in Oakland and hadn't gotten out. Really, I think she was mad at my dad for not getting that. But there was a lot more. The fact that Black Jack was still out there really ate at her. Nothing's over, she kept saying. You act like it's all over, but nothing is. We haven't won anything if that squid's still out there. This all started when it was just that squid, and it can blow right back up again. The fact that I was 17 ate at her too. She was positive that I was going to get drafted into the Navy and kept talking about how if they tried to take me, she was going to chain herself to the courthouse door because she didn't want to lose her son on top of her aunt. I'd tell her that if they called me up, I wanted to go because it was my duty and I wanted to play my part. That usually just made her mad at my dad. They fought all the time. That was the spring of 50 for me. Them fighting. They split up not long after I turned 18. I did eventually get a draft notice, but it was for the Air Force, and all I did was write about sports for a base newspaper. My dad and I did eventually have a really great road trip out to the Grand Canyon. End quote. For mathematician Kay Henry, spring of 1950 was also a time of mixed emotions, although in her case, the emotions were hope and frustration. Quote, In the office, we really felt like we had him on the run. We had an extremely solid behavioral profile of the creatures, and we were using it to great effect. There was still one primary out there, but I was confident, and so was Rich Trumbull, that it was just a matter of time before we got her. Admiral Fletcher would get nervous and call us in and grill us on, when are you going to bag Black Jack? And we'd always have to talk him down. We'll get her when she interacts with the right mousetrap convoy. It's just a matter of time. Then I'd dazzle him with charts and graphs, and Rich would do his special tactics tap dance, and the Admiral would be mollified for a few days. And that was all fine. A little irritating, but it was old news. But then one day, Fletcher called me in and said that the White House wanted us to make another push on figuring out where all the creatures had come from. Why? I asked. We had them all but beaten. Because they're the White House and they give the orders, he answered. Don't you have a desk working on this? I reminded him that Blake Hart had been sent packing and then gotten arrested in some weird cult thing. He sputtered and told me to find a replacement because he damn well had to tell the White House that he was working on it. So I asked around and UCSD had a marine biologist on staff whose work seemed to fit the bill. And better yet, she was a woman. I always felt mighty outnumbered in the halls at ONI. So I reached out to Dr. Regina Foner, And she was interested and came on board. And Admiral Fletcher was happy. The White House was mollified that we were at least working on it. And I quickly was miserable. Because it turned out that Dr. Foner was nuts. It was Blake Hart all over again, but worse. Every other day, she'd be in my office raving about atomic weapons and cosmic rays and how they all interacted with sea life. She wanted to fly a tank with a couple of normal octopi in it to the top of Pike's Peak to see if more direct exposure to a higher level of cosmic rays would make them grow really big and get really mean. This time, I just sat through it. I figured putting up with this nonsense was part of my contribution to the war effort, if it kept the White House and the Admiral happy, for me to keep saying, Dr. Foner is exploring some really interesting possibilities. I wanted the Navy to get Black Jack not only to end the war and stop the menace and the killing, but also to get me out of having to listen to Regina Foner's babbling all the damn time. End quote. In March of 1950, Grigory Sobyanin, ostensibly a cultural attaché at the Soviet Embassy in London, but in actuality the number two man in the KGB operation in the UK, walked into the U.S. Embassy and announced his intention to defect. His offer was accepted immediately, and elaborate efforts were undertaken to spirit him out of the country without being found by either the KGB or the UK's MI5, the Americans badly wanted to avoid having to share the debrief with MI5, which they considered compromised and thoroughly unreliable. Sobyanin arrived in suburban Washington, D.C., and was debriefed extensively, And while his defection was an intelligence goldmine in many respects, one item in particular was relevant to the conflict in the Pacific. Sobyanin revealed that six months previously, an entire Soviet naval task force had set out on a patrol mission probing east from a base in the Kuril Islands and had been lost without a trace after reporting contact with black jack, kraken, and some lesser creatures. Before this, there had been inferences but no firm indication that the Soviet Navy had been in any way checked by problems with the sea creatures. This solid confirmation changed the dynamic of some of the debates in Washington. The MacArthur-Lemay viewpoint that the Soviets were running wild while Dewey focused on the Pacific took a severe hit. Although this development did not deter them from constantly pointing to the Soviet domination of Japan and Germany. Also in March, President Dewey, frustrated with the slow pace of the repairs to the Panama Canal and the near exhaustion of the West Coast supply of Liberty ships, or indeed any other surplus merchant vessels that could be converted to mousetrap bait ships, asked SYNCPAC for suggestions. The Trumbull Group spent a week consulting with West Coast shipyards and destroyer captains with experience doing mousetrap runs and suggested a program of crash construction of so-called bait barges. The barges were designed to be barely seaworthy, existing only to be towed and filled with explosives. Their prime, arguably their only virtues, were their ability to be constructed quickly and cheaply, and their total expendability. In one sense, their terrible seaworthiness was a positive. The barge's awful hydrodynamics produced a great deal of the kind of turbulence that attracted the creatures, almost negating the need for noise fins. For a few weeks, at the end of March 1950, the nation's attention was gripped by the trial of Ensign Ken Hucano, originally of Plano, Texas. Hucano had been a Helldiver pilot flying off the USS Lexington, joining the fleet in early 1948 and participating in several months' worth of action against the creatures, including the Battle of San Francisco. After San Francisco, Hukano lost his nerve. Between the hair-raising dives to drop bombs or napalm on sea monsters, dives which he saw turn fatal for several of his squadron mates, and the constant shipboard fear of your vessel being abruptly pulled under in a surprise attack, Hukano simply found himself near the end of his emotional rope, going into the Battle of San Francisco. And then that horrifying debacle had broken him. When the Lexington had returned to San Diego shortly afterwards, Hocano went ashore for what was supposed to be a 48-hour leave, but never came back. Hocano was hardly the only deserter from action in the Pacific, but he wound up being the first to be caught. Indeed, the Navy's desertion problem got so bad during this stretch that a standing sub-command, the Office of Deserter Apprehension Pacific, was created for the duration. Although this fact was downplayed in public for understandable reasons, the Navy made sure that the rank and file was well aware that an entire team of specialists existed to run them down if they decided to go over the hill, as they called it. Anyway, Hukano managed to stay under the radar for most of 1949, spending 11 months drifting from couch to couch on the west coast, slowly making his way northward with law enforcement constantly on his trail. Eventually, Hucano decided that the walls were closing in on him in the United States and that he was endangering everyone who offered him shelter, so he decided to try crossing the Canadian border from rural Washington. Hucano's border crossing was a fiasco. A native Texan, he had failed to consider that when walking through snow, one left easily followed tracks, and he was caught a quarter mile away from the frontier by border guards in January of 1950. Having caught a high-profile deserter, the Navy, with Dewey's approval, decided to make as much of an example of him as possible, and turned his court-martial into something closely resembling a show trial. A compliant press, eager to do their part for the war effort, went along more than willingly, providing banner coverage day after day for the parade of prosecution witnesses who were there mostly to grandstand about how Hukano had let down his buddies, his country and his god and that is a direct quote from the New York Times. Public polling indicated that by the end of the trial Ken Hukano was a more reviled figure in the United States than Joseph Stalin although he could never quite reach the levels of universal condemnation reached by Hawaii secessionist General Art Peters. Ironically, When Hucano was found guilty and sentenced to 15 years in federal prison, he was transferred to Leavenworth Federal Prison, the same facility where Peters was incarcerated. When the journalist Truman Capote interviewed Hucano several years later, the deserting ensign was surprisingly phlegmatic about it all. Look, it's a prison, and that ain't great, he said, but at least there aren't any dang killer squids in Kansas. About those killer squids... The most significant and dramatic moment in the struggle in 1950 happened in April. Convoy CX-242, consisting of 12 merchant ships bracketed by six mousetrap destroyers, was running north parallel to the Washington coast, en route from Portland to Anchorage. The convoy had been at sea a day and a half on April 6th when, at 4.32 p.m., The bait barge pulled by the destroyer USS O'Bannon, the ship holding station on the convoy's port quarter, was abruptly enveloped in tentacles. The familiar bridge cable thick black tentacles dreaded by all in the Pacific and hoped for by only a handful of daredevils in the Navy. The O'Bannon skipper was one of those daredevils. The ship was helmed by Commander Jorge Estrada, a man who incredibly had been aboard the USS Dahlgren in 1945 when a much smaller black jack kraken had made its first documented attack. Estrada had burned with fury for the subsequent five years. When he saw the tentacles erupt around the bait barge, his heart jumped. His chance had finally come. From O'Bannon's Bridge, Estrada ordered the standard mousetrap progression. Cut the tow cable? order the ship's engines to flank speed to open up distance and signal the rest of the convoy and escorts that contact had been made. He did these, watching Blackjack tear the barge to pieces. Doctrine called for captains to let the encounter play out as long as possible to give themselves a chance to get clear of the explosion. But at the rate Blackjack was destroying the bait barge, which were significantly less damage resistant than the already flimsy Liberty ships, he feared that the explosives in their detonator would be on their way to the bottom of the sea before O'Bannon was clear. So Estrada ordered his crew to brace and signaled his gunnery officer to blow the barge. The officer, Lieutenant Jason Hall, did so, and the barge detonated, sending a column of water hundreds of feet into the sky. Seconds later, the shock wave rocked the O'Bannon, but the ship escaped serious damage or injury to crew. Estrada ordered the ship to throttle back and instructed his aft lookouts, who, by the way, were standing on a special aft viewing tower, which was a very common Mousetrap-era adaptation to destroyers, to evaluate the damage. He also ordered the ship to begin a 180-degree turn to circle back around to drop some depth charges. As the smoke cleared, the reports made their way back to the bridge by telephone. Blackjack was wounded, but very clearly still alive, sitting partially above the surface in what appeared to be a somewhat stunned state. As the O'Bannon made her way around the turn, Estrada could see it for himself. There, damaged but still moving, was the monster that had started all of this, the big one whose continued presence kept any sort of normality from really reasserting itself. And, as Estrada watched, it seemed to be recollecting its wits. It turned to face the O'Bannon. Normally, the convoy's air support would intervene with napalm, but this convoy, like an ever-increasing number of them as things settled down, had sailed without an escort carrier. The other destroyers were still burdened with their mousetrap barges and had been steadily moving away from the action. There was no one available to help. Estrada ordered a course correction to aim the ship directly at the creature and ordered his engine rooms once again back up to flank speed. Only one thing had worked against this monster in 1945, and there was no reason not to try it again now, he later explained. The ship surged forward towards the wounded, enraged squid, which began tentacle-lashing the bow as they closed on each other, sweeping men overboard from forward positions by the handful. The ship rammed the squid at 35 knots, its top speed. The impact rocked the ship buckling the O'Bannon's bow, which was driven deep into Blackjack's body by the enormity of the collision. The already wounded creature was torn to pieces by the force. 26 officers and men aboard the O'Bannon were killed, although some of those listed as dead were probably killed by the tentacle lashing that had happened on the approach. The last of the big four primary creatures was dead. With her bow buckled, O'Bannon was in no condition to continue with the convoy. Estrada ordered as many pieces of Blackjack's carcass as could be recovered from the sea to be lashed to the deck of the ship, a significant portion was still embedded in the bow, to be honest, and the ship limped to Kitsap Naval Base in Puget Sound, pumps and damage control crews working mightily the whole time to keep the sea from pouring into the front of the ship. Word had gotten out ahead of them, presumably from the merchant ships and the convoy, and although it was dark in the early morning of April 7th when the ship entered the sound, Estrada and his crew could still see headlights and even small portable spotlights from crowds gathering to see what they could see on the moonlit night. The ship docked at Kitsap, and a team from ONI immediately met Estrada and his officers and began debriefing them. The captain and his officers were under fairly hostile interrogation all day on the 7th, while the news continued to spread and, with it, absolute jubilation over the fact that Black Jack Kraken, the terror of the deep, was finally dead. Estrada's debrief finally ended on the morning of the 8th, with a stern warning that he would probably be facing court-martial for his rash actions in ramming the creature, a mistake which had needlessly wrecked his ship, killed dozens of his crew, and risked losing all of the rest of them. He was strictly ordered not to talk to the press. He then stepped off base to discover that, while being interrogated, he had become a national hero. The order not to talk to the press didn't matter. The entire rest of the seafaring community was more than ready to talk to the press on his behalf, always to the effect that he had essentially slain the dragon that had terrorized them all. Over the next few weeks, the Navy prepared its court-martial. Dewey, through Secretary of Defense McLeod, quietly let it be known in the back channels of the Naval High Command that he would greatly prefer it if the Navy did not pursue the court-martial for reasons of public morale. The Navy pushed back, but Dewey held firm. The boost to public morale was far more important than the moral hazard that a future theoretical naval commander might risk his ship against a sea monster chasing heroism. The Navy stood down, and the public celebration raged on with no one the wiser. Estrada was eventually used to boost recruiting and sell Bay Area reconstruction bonds. Meanwhile, the last and greatest of the sea monsters was dead, and all of the primaries were accounted for. And that is it for this episode. Thanks, as always, for listening. Please join me next week as we look at what it looks like for the U.S. to be unambiguously winning the war for once. Thanks, and be well. Didn't think about who they was attacking. Wanker boys! get out there and bust them krakens I almost feel sorry for them serpents we've been tracking battle stations boys get out there and bust them krakens line up all them battleships and send this seafood packing. train them guns out boys get out there and bust them krakens dee 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 dee